0: John chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. That's Ecclesiastes. Yeah, right before Revelation. That's right, sister. Thank you for that. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is Christ is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone that loveth Him, that beget, loveth Him also that is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thank you, Lord, for your Word. Uh, May we hear it in the truth now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, These, to me, are some of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament, specifically uh, verses 4 and 5, where John calls believers overcomers. And it's a very interesting Greek word there. It's it's made up of of, of, uh, two Greek words. It comes from the word Nikeo, which means to conquer. The Greeks actually had a goddess that was named Nike. That's where the idea of the tennis shoe came from. Um, Greek mythology says that she helped Zeus uh, conquer a group of people known as the Titans. Now the Titans were a legendary race of, of powerful deities. And it's an inspiring reality to know that God uses this word to describe us as believers. He says we are overcomers. We are conquerors. He's saying that as believers, oh, we're going to win. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, Paul said this. Paul said, you are more than conquerors. And that little phrase in the Greek language literally means you are super conquerors. So the idea is not only are we going to conquer, not only are we going to win, but it's not even going to be close. We are going to overwhelmingly conquer. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, I'm sorry, 57 says, But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 16, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Because believers are united with Christ and because Christ has overcome the world, we are therefore victorious. Now, when we think about that, when we think about, well, we're victorious, what does that mean? What do we have victory over? I want to think about that for just a moment here. Uh, the first thing is pretty obvious. We have overcome Satan. in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, the Scripture says, speaking of believers, you have overcome the wicked one. You have overcome the wicked one. And I want you to notice that that's past tense. We have already overcome the wicked one. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Satan is the great enemy of our souls. Satan is the one who's seeking to destroy us, walking around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us, Scripture says. But here's the thing, he'll never do it. He'll never overcome us because as Christians, we've already overcome Him. Why? Because we're united in Christ. We're in Christ Jesus. Not only have we overcome Satan, but Scripture says as believers we've overcome death. 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, O death, where is your strength? Sting. O grave, where is your victory? We know that for the believer to die is to gain. We have no reason to fear death because we're eternally alive in Christ. So what are we conquerors of? We're conquerors of Satan. We're conquerors of death. And also, we have overcome the world. John says that in 1 John 5 verse 4. We already talked about what the world was in a previous sermon. It's this evil system that's set up against the ideas of God. We see it every day. This system is going to tug at your flesh every day. It's going to woo you to itself and away from God every day. But as Christians, we can be certain that the world is not going to win us back. We've already overcome the world. Doesn't mean we aren't tempted. It means that the world won't conquer us. It means that we will conquer the world. We will conquer its sinfulness. And so John here shows us in these passages the characteristic of the type of person that he's talking about. What does an overcomer look like? If we're trying to look out there and say, okay, who are the overcomers? Who are these people who have overcome Satan? Who are these people who have overcome death? Who are these people who have overcome the world? Who are these people? And so he's going to describe these people to us. He identifies them by, by their faith, by their love, and then finally, he, he identifies them by their obedience. And those are the three things that we'll look at tonight. So let's begin with faith. Overcomers have faith in Christ. Look at verse 5. In, in, in verse 5, But he, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So John defines who an overcomer is in the most simplest of terms. An overcomer is a true believer in Christ. Now to John, when he talked about a believer, it didn't mean somebody who just... Gave assent to the facts. Okay, I believe the facts about Jesus. That's not what a believer was to him at all. A believer was, when you read this book, first of all, one who believed in the Jesus of the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 3 is a good example of that. Specifically, in this book, that Jesus has come in the flesh. That Jesus Himself is God in the flesh. And then secondly, true believers are those who their faith is evidenced by works. So here he's describing a particular believer, a believer who believes the truth about who Jesus is, and a believer whose life in Christ has been evidenced by works. Now it's also important to, to, to look back at, at verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth Him, that begat Him, loveth Him also that is begotten of Him. You see, in that verse, you see that faith in Christ flows from where? From the new birth. From being born again. You believe the truth about God. Why do you believe the truth about God, church? Because you've been born again. You've been saved. God has done a work in your life. You've been united to God by your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's not something that's just casual, it's something that's miraculous. Your faith isn't something you just conjured up yourself. It's a gift of God. And we believe this. We believe, hey God, You've done a work in my life. You've proven Yourself to me. Lord, You've opened my eyes. Lord, you opened my heart. You have enabled me to understand the truth of the Gospel. And Lord, I believe because You have done a work in my life. So a couple of questions here to ask ourselves then. Do do I believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible? And and has my belief changed the way that I live? And if that's true, then I can rejoice as an overcomer because I'm one of these people He's talking about. I've been born again. Now, you need to know that if you're a true believer in Christ, you'll always be a true believer in Christ. You'll not stop believing. That's why in 1 John 2.19, John said... Because you might say, well, wait wait a minute. What about those who went out from us? They're not overcomers. They didn't overcome. They were overcome. They themselves were overcome. But remember what he said. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He said, if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And so John here, he says, look, the fact that you overcome proves that you've been born of God. The fact that these are people who abandoned the faith proved that they had not been born again. If you're truly saved, your faith will overcome any doubt, any assault the world, the flesh, or the devil throw at it. If you're a true believer, John says you are an overcomer. And man, that is good news. The second thing I want you to see is overcomers love the church. Overcomers love the church. Now it's pretty clear that John is talking about believers in these passages as the object of our love. Believers are the begotten of Him in verse 1. And everyone that loves Him, that begat, loves Him also that is begotten of Him. In other words, you love the one who saved you and you love the other people He saved. Pretty simple for us to understand. The children of God in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. So John is just constantly, continually reminding us how important it is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to look at all the passages devoted to this. I'm just going to run through it real quick. Look at 1 John 3. 2, verse 10. He that loveth his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whither he goes, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Now look at chapter 3, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest in the children of devil of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Then look at chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And then look at verse 17 of the same chapter. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? And then in verse 23 of the same chapter. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And then look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another another for love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God he that loves not knoweth not God for God is love then look at verse 12 no man has seen God at any time if we love one another God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us and then look at verse 20 and 21 if a man say i love God and hates his brother he's a liar For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we seen from him that he who loves God loves his brother also. Man, do you see how much that theme goes through this book? Again, as I I talked to you on Wednesday night, I think it was, I think that the problem. The reason that that John talks about this so much all through this book is because one of the biggest problems in the church was not only false teaching about the person of Christ, but it was also a lack of love between the members of the church that people weren't loving one another. People were just angry. People were divided. They weren't unified at all. And he's saying over and over, guys, you've got to understand that the two most important characteristics in your life is to love God and love each other. And if you do one, you say, I love God, but you don't love each other. He says, look, the first one doesn't count then. Because it's two great commandments. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the two commandments. You can't separate those things. And if you're a true overcomer, not only do you love the Lord, but you love His people too. And there are people who have a faith that does not lead them to church. But that faith is not an overcomer's faith. I hear a lot of people, they put down the church. There are people who claim to be Christians, claim to be believers, but they put down the church. And then they say, well, I just see no use for church whatsoever. And here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is they don't like the people at church. That's why most people leave. But let me be clear to you. There are no perfect people. But not only are there no perfect people, there's no one even remotely close to being perfect. Right? It's not like, well, you're not perfect. You're right there. You're close. Just a tad more and you would have it. That's not it. We're not even close to being perfect. Not even the people in church. But if you're a true believer, you're going to love the people of God regardless of the way that they act. You know, there are people, and you'll see them in church, and they'll, they'll leave. And I'm telling you, almost all people leave church because of people. Right? Almost all people leave church because of people. And as a pastor, it's very interesting because they'll find out something or somebody will do something to them or whatever, and then they'll, oh, Brother Kyle, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, man, if you knew what I knew, you'd think gone a long time ago. Man, as a pastor, I just know so much that I don't want to know about people. You understand? That's why I don't follow anybody on Facebook. I've told y'all so many times. If you're my friend on Facebook, I have unfollowed you. That means that that we're still friends, but whatever you post, I do not see. You know why? Because I've seen enough. I've seen enough of what Christians put on Facebook. And I don't mind being your friends. And if we could talk back and forth on Facebook. But I'm telling you, man, if I, I wouldn't have to study a bit. Because if I was on Facebook, I'd come in here so upset and aggravated every week. I'd just have a sermon off everything I read off Facebook, man. And that'd be wrong. That'd be wrong. Listen... If you're truly saved, you're going to have a desire to be with and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your biological family is not perfect, and your spiritual family is not perfect. But could you imagine, you know, just because your biological family isn't perfect, you don't cut yourself off from them. But Jesus said in Matthew 12 that our spiritual family is more important than our physical family. Who is my father? Who is my mother? Who is my brothers? He said, "The one that follows me, who loves me, that's the one." There seems to be a disconnect between loving God and obeying Him when it comes to this idea of loving one another in the church. But it, while there may be a disconnect in the church, there's no disconnect in Scripture. Scripture is very clear: if you love God, if you love God, you're going to seek to obey Him in this area. True overcomers will continue to love the people of God. I've said it many times. I've said, you know what, what if somebody said, well, you know, well, Pastor Kyle, I love you, but I, but I can't stand your wife. What am I going to do? Oh, that's okay, brother. See, it's on my nerves every once in a while too. Come on up, we'll be buddies, we'll be pals. Listen, the church is the bride of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. And you, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing in this world that he loves like the bride of Christ. God so loved the world, right? He loves this man. He, he loves us as his bride. And we have to be careful about putting down in this whole, this whole movement we have. Of, well, I just don't need the church. I don't need the church. Well, let me ask you a question what if the church needs you? Church needs you. Because, Rose, I don't need the church. Well, that's supposed to give you some type of excuse. What if I were to say, I don't need my family? I'm the one who makes the money. I'll just leave them. That's right, Pastor. You don't need them. Just go. You know what? Maybe they need me. And what's more virtuous? It's more virtuous. That's a hard word to say. Virtuous for me to say, you know what? I'm a martyr. In this body, and I need to be here. Amen. I'm an eye in this body, and I need to be here. I'm a foot in this body, and I need to be here. And people who leave the church with this sanctimonious idea that they're being virtuous have have deceived themselves. Church. And I was thinking just a, just a second ago as we were we were praying for our dear sister Kay. Uh, and all that was going, going on in, in her life. And I was thinking about uh, her not as Kay Stevenson, but as we were thinking about her, I was thinking about her as my sister. That's how I think about it. Her as my sister. And you know what? While we were up here, and we were we, we were sorrowing with those who sorrowed, we were, we were weeping for those who were weeping. We were praying for Kay. Literally. I'm not making this up literally while we were praying for her, she was calling me. Literally. She called me twice while we were up here talking about everything that she was going through and praying for her. And you know what? I saw that, because I looked at my phone because it was buzzing over there, I said what in the world, you know, it was buzzing and I saw Kay Stevenson two times. And I'll tell you, you know what, it blessed my heart. Because not only were we thinking about her, what? She was thinking about us. She was thinking about us. us. Now I'm going to tell you something, you don't get that in the world. You can say all you want about the church, but you don't get that in the world, do you? You go to Walmart, not a single person in there cares what you're going through. Not a single person in the restaurant, not a single person, probably, probably not many people at your job care about you like the people at church will. You know, this morning, and, and I don't want to talk about myself, but this morning, the, the, you know, they came up and gave me that card about me getting uh, my master's degree. Which, you know, whatever. Like I said, I'm 50 years old just about. Big deal. I got a master's degree. Took me long enough. But do you know, not a, not a single person in my family said, good job, Kyle. Not a single person. But you did. You did. You know, I got saved. And I was lost as I could be, running the roads, in and out of jail, ungodly. I got saved at Faith Chapel Baptist Church, January 14, 1996. About five months later, they sent me off to college to be a preacher. Do you know when they sent me out? As far as family goes, who was there? My mom and my granny, they're both dead. Who filled my pockets? Who filled my gas tank? A church family I just met. Amen? A church family I just met, who probably, the church is half the size of this one, as far as attendance goes. They're probably all dead by now. But my point is, man, it's a new family. And in this new family, it's amazing what God does. And if you are an overcomer, if you're a person who is truly saved, I am going to tell you something, man, you're going to love God's people. You're going to absolutely love them. Next, overcomers obey God's command. Commands. John says that the love of God is proven in our lives as we keep His commands. In fact, in verse 2, he says that we prove we love the children of God by keeping the commandments. In verse 2 and 3, John is teaching us uh, that we don't love God and we don't love His children if we don't keep His commandments. That's what he says. And again, there's a disconnect there. Hey, I can love God, but I don't have to obey God. I don't have to do what the Bible says, and I can still love God. But Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love Me, keep My commandments. And and Jesus made that same point on several occasions in John 14, 21, in John 14, 23 and 24, in John 15, 10. Now John's not here suggesting that we're perfect, because he already said in 1 John 1, 8 that we're not perfect, but but there's a big difference between sinning and living in sin. I like to say this: nobody expects their kids to get an A. Nobody expects their kids to get an A in everything, right? You're not expecting your kid to get a hundred on every single test. But at the same time, we don't expect straight F's either, do we? Because all if you ever get is F's, guess what? You're not trying, honey, right? And so the idea is, look, I know that we're all sinners. Nobody's going to make that perfect 4.0 when it comes to keeping the commandments of God. But if all you ever do is make F after F after F, then there may be a problem with your spirituality. If you fail every test God gives you, test after test after test, you need to say, oh Lord, am I born of God? Am I doing this in the flesh? Because it seems if I'm doing this in the flesh, I would fail. But if I'm doing it in the Spirit, then I would succeed some. When you truly love the Lord, you're going to want to obey Him. You're going to strive to please Him in your actions. Chapter 3 verse 22 says that. Now notice that John says in verse 3, "...and His commandments are not grievous." In other words, when you you get saved, and you look at the commandments of God, you're like, oh boy, you mean I can't get drunk anymore? Oh gosh. You mean I can't cuss my neighbor out anymore? Oh gosh, life's going to stink. If that's how you look at Christianity, there's something desperately wrong with you. Desperately wrong with you. In other words, the commandments of God aren't something that we say, I don't want to do. It's something that we want to do now that we've been born of God. Because when we obey God, we're filled with joy. But when we disobey God as Christians, we feel terrible. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so when you walk in the will of the Lord, when you obey the will of the Lord, I'm telling you, there's a joy in your life. But when you don't walk in the will of the Lord, there's a heaviness in your life. There's a depression in your life. So let's summarize all this. True believers in Christ are overcomers. They are more than conquerors. The battle has already been won. And we know that we're overcomers because we have a continuing faith in Jesus Christ We continue to love the people of God. And finally, we show our love by living in obedience to the commands of God. Those are the three characteristics of an overcomer there. Now the last thing I want us to consider is the blessing that overcomers receive. So we're going to take a right in our Bibles. I don't normally do this, but we're going to turn over to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 because this is a very interesting section. John wrote this as well, but in Revelation 2 and 3, it gives a list of the blessings that are reserved for overcomers. In other words, if you're an overcomer, you can expect this. We need to understand that all believers get all of these blessings. So let's look at each of them. We'll start chapter 2, verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto him, unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, first of all, as an overcomer, you eat of the tree of life. What does that enable you to do? Live forever, it's symbolic. You're going to live forever. So as, a, as an overcomer, you have no reason to fear death. You're going to live with God in paradise forever and ever and ever. Amen? Pretty good deal, isn't it? That's the first blessing of overcoming. Second one, in chapter 2, verse 11. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. We're not going to be heard of the second death. What is the second death? don't have to wonder about that. Revelation 21.8 tells us what the second death is. It's the lake of fire. Believers never have to fear the wrath of God. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I tell you what, man, that's a great blessing. Amen? Not going to hell ought to be right there at the top of everybody's list of the good things that are going to happen to you. Amen? Not going to hell. Ought to be way up there on the top of your list, man. So the first blessing of the overcomer, I'm never going to die. The second blessing, I'm not going to hell. Third blessing, look at verse 17. It actually contains two blessings. Chapter 2, verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So first there's the hidden manna. What is that? That symbolizes God's eternal provision for His people. Just as He fed Israel supernaturally in the wilderness... You ever wonder like that? Well, how are we going to eat in heaven? You're going to eat in heaven the same way the Israelites ate in the wilderness. It was supernatural. God fed them. And when you and I get to heaven, and it's a wonderful thing that we're going to eat there, He's going to feed us supernaturally. <coughs> Which, by the way, just as a side note, can you just imagine how good that's going to taste? Amen? Amen? Food that God makes for us. And then we see the white stone in this verse. And, and, and the stone has a name inscribed on it, known only to the holder and to God. Now, a little bit of Greek history here. In, in Greek games, where we get our Olympic games, a white stone was given to the victor at particular events that they won. This white stone would actually be used like a ticket to enter into a ceremony that was reserved for all the people who won at their event, won first place in their event. And the idea here is is if you're a Christian, you're going to be a part of an awards ceremony set aside only for the children of God. You know, we often think about judgment and stuff like that, and and we should think about that, but I want to tell you, as a Christian, you don't need to understand that God also promises rewards, doesn't He? And if you're a Christian, you're an overcomer, you're like a VIP, man. You're ushered into this wonderful event that God is putting on. And all of us as believers are there. And He rewards us. That's a blessing, man. Next, look at chapter 2, verse 26 through 28. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations... And He shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give Him the morning star. So this one has two blessings as well. The first is power over the nations. What does that mean? That means that you reign with Christ. Christ is coming back to this earth one day. He's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to reign here for a thousand years. And those who belong to Him are going to reign with Him. And then He says you're going to receive the morning star. If you go to chapter 22, don't turn there now, but if you go to chapter 22, verse 16, what's the morning star? It's Jesus. You get Jesus, folks. Amen. You get Him. You get His person. You get Christ. This is what an overcomer gets. What a blessing that is. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out His name out of the book of life, but I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. So here we see three things we experience as overcomers. Number one, we're clothed in white raiment. In other words, this sinful flesh that you and I carry around every day is going to be completely eradicated. The perfect righteousness of Christ will forever be our clothing. He says, you won't have your names blotted out of the book of life. There was a registry that was kept in each city. And there was two ways you had your name removed from the registry of each city. Number one, you died. Or number two, they kicked you out of the city. Again, like they would do that. They would just kick you out of the city. So you are no longer a resident of that city. So he's saying here that... that We've got this wonderful promise that our names are not going to be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. That, that we're never going to die, so it will be never removed. And He's never going to kick us out. He's never going to excommunicate us. And Revelation thirteen eight tells us that. The third promise is that Jesus will confess our names to the Father. Which means what? It means you get to enter heaven. He's saying, this one belongs to me. By the way, it also means that Jesus knows the name of every person who goes to heaven. Are you like me and have trouble with names? Jesus has no trouble with names. Amen. He knows your name, and He'll confess that name to the Father. And then look at chapter 3, verse 12. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Three more blessings. We'll make a pillar in the temple of God. What's a pillar have? It has stability. It's there. It stands forever and ever. Nothing's going to knock us over. Then he says, we will not go in and out of the city. It's interesting here because you've got to think about what was happening in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was situated in such a way that they had awful earthquakes. And they had a plan in place. Every time they could feel the tremors of one of the earthquakes, you know what they would do, they would run out of the city. Get away, get to safety. And then after everything calmed down, what would they do? They would come back into the city when everything settled down. But here's the thing. He says, you know, in heaven, you're not going to go in and out of that city. In other words, there's never a reason to want to flee the city. There's nothing there that you're going to be afraid of. There are are no earthquakes or tornadoes or or armies coming against you. There's, There's perfect peace. And then notice here that the Lord will mark us as His own. Marked with the name of God, the name of the city, and a new name. What is that new name? Well, I think that new name is the name the Lord gives us. I can't exactly prove this to you, but there's enough evidence that I believe it's true in Scripture. I don't think in heaven two people have the same name. I think we're that unique in heaven to God. God says, I'm going to give you a new name. A new name. Now that could be symbolic. It could be symbolic of the idea that God... Loves and knows you as if you were the only one there. He knows you that intricately. He's, he's that close to you. You know, when you get to heaven, don't think that you're just going to be some face in a sea of souls that have been saved from the beginning of time and that you'll just kind of be off to the back and, and nobody will really notice you. No, when you are in heaven, you know Christ and Christ knows you in a very intimate way close as you can be to God in heaven. This personal name given to you by God could symbolize this deep personal relationship or it could symbolize both. That you do have your own unique name given to you by God. You were born of God. He gives you a name and there is this beautiful relationship. Revelation 3.21 gives us our last blessing. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even also as I overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne to sit with Christ on His throne. Now that doesn't mean that you literally sit on Christ's throne. It means you share in the kingdom He reigns over. What a blessing. It means you belong there. Amen? You know, I have two kids that don't live with me any longer. Abigail was gone for a whole day And I'm not complaining about that. I'm happy to see her, you know, come. But you know what? She belongs there. And she'll always belong there. Amen? I don't care if she's 60 and I'm 80 and we're still living on 1271 Jasmine Road. Abigail Giddens will always belong there. You know, why? Because she was born of me. She was born of my wife. And those who were born of God always belong in heaven. God's not saying, boy, I tell you, you've been here 10,000 years. You may may want to think about heading out. Not happening, y'all. We are a part of this kingdom forever and ever and ever. All right, let me wrap this up. Number one, all true believers are overcomers. If you're saved, John's talking about you. Number two, overcomers live in victory over sin in this world. Number three, the victory we enjoy on this earth over our sin is the result of the new birth, not the cause of it. And number four, there are wonderful, wonderful blessings that await us as overcomers. And they can't get here soon enough. Amen. I tell you, I, I know I'm not some elder. Oh, you're just a young whippersnapper. I'm not a young whippersnapper. I just want everybody to know that. I'm almost 50 years old. I am not one of these people who think middle aged is 50. Because I'm not planning on living to be 100. Maybe I will. And that'll be great. But here's the thing it doesn't bother me that I'm getting older, it doesn't bother me that I'm getting closer to that piece of granite with April 3rd, 1974. And whatever dates on the other side on it. That didn't bother me, y'all. You know why it doesn't bother me? Because I believe with every fiber of my being in a place called heaven. And as I said at a funeral the other day, I was preaching at a funeral the other day, and we seem to think, oh, you know, they're in a better place, and they're in a better place because they were in a coma, or they're in a better place because they suffered for so long. I don't care if you are the healthiest person in this world and the wealthiest person in this world. Heaven is a better place. Amen? It is a better place. And the reason it doesn't bother me that I'm getting older is because I've got promises like this in the Word of God that teach me all of these blessings that are waiting for the overcomers. And it can't get here quick enough, church. You know Him today. Well, I hope you do. Father in heaven, we love you. We're thankful for these beautiful promises.